So a friend of mine recently told me this ancient Greek joke where these two people bump into each other on the street and the first person says, it's you, I heard you were dead. And the second person says, well, you can clearly see that I, I am alive. And the first person goes, well, I don't know. The person who told me you were dead is much more trustworthy than you are. This is Witch Hassle. Let's get to work. Welcome to Witch Hassle. I am your host, Cooper Wilhelm, and I am very excited today to bring you my interview with Cadmus, where we talk about his, frankly, very radical and fascinating reimagining of necromancy and what necromancy is and how we can conceive of its mechanics. So I just want to jump into that very quickly and eventually we do end up talking about politics in this current political moment in the midst of the crisis because he did of course write a fabulous book about paganism and politics true to the earth pagan political theology so let's just jump in but before we get there three things one if you would like to support the show of course you are completely encouraged to do so please go to witch hassle on patreon that's patreon.com slash witch hassle to one of the interviews that i have conducted but have yet to finish editing and therefore is coming up on an upcoming episode of the show was with artist sam van aiken and sam van aiken is the artist behind a tree that has 40 different kinds of tree grafted to it so a, a kind of chimera tree and we get into that in the interview but before that interview comes out he's going to be doing a live streamed workshop uh with the open orchard school and that's tomorrow april 26th and i will put a link to that in the show notes and description so before you even get the full story about sam here is something you can do to learn more from sam so that's very exciting and the third thing we have to get to before the interview is our plague magic minute so as a public service throughout the rest of the year witch hassle will be doing brief plague magic segments to give you some plague magic information that you can use to sprinkle on top of the standard health guidelines and protocols that you should be following. Don't do magic instead of what the medical authorities are telling you, but by all means feel free to add a bit of magic. Today's plague magic minute comes to us courtesy of Ivanichka Georgieva's Bulgarian mythology, in which we are told that ivy, or brusilion, is a symbol of good health and long life, and it is used as a protection amulet against epidemics. So, we are in the midst of one of those. Maybe get yourself some ivy. We are also told in this, in this wonderful, wonderful work with a lot of great photography in it. Like, if you can find a copy of it, it is a gorgeous book. But we are told that one of the best places to gather ivy 
is on the walls of a church or a monastery and when you go picking for ivy you should leave a coin a piece of bread or a thread to appease storm demons so there you go maybe find some ivy growing on a church or a monastery bring that home with you after leaving a suitable offering so you don't get attacked by storm demons so there's your plague magic minute this one was actually kind of a minute long as opposed to the previous ones which were uh you know about like quarter of an hour or something like that anyway so now i'm very pleased to bring you this interview with cadmus who is an author and philosopher and political pagan theologian it was a great joy and i hope you enjoy it as well anyway you are a serious academic and i'm here to interview you about that um (laughs) Thank you so much for being on. It's a uh, pleasure, as always. I, I am very excited to talk to you about this paper you did for the International Necromancy Consortium. But just to... That didn't happen, right? That was supposed to happen this weekend. Yeah, that was canceled, unfortunately. Well, postponed because of, of course, the, the plague and all of that. Do we know... Do you know when that's going to, to reemerge or be resurrected, I guess? So a lot of it is going to depend on what happens with COVID-19. So when things clear up and, you know, when we're allowed out of the house again and all that stuff. What was mentioned was hopefully next fall, but that's not conclusive or official or anything like that. But I think if everything goes smoothly and everything is better come the fall, then they're hoping to schedule it sometime around the fall. Okay. Well, that's, you know, fingers crossed and... Knock on wood there. In this paper, you do a very, I think, revolutionary reimagining of the idea of necromancy. But this ties into a distinction you make in your book, True to the Earth. And so I, I not to like do the, the Tristram Shandy thing of naming a thing and then actually having to work all the way back. So eventually by the end of this conversation, we might actually get to the beginning of your paper somehow. But <laughs> yeah, uh, yes. In, in True to the Earth, you make a very important distinction between high pagan societies and sort of literate pagan societies and, and the, 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 the worldview that they create. So at least in terms of talking about, say, the arc from Plato and Aristotle all the way through Heinrich Agrippa and our sort of you know classic favorites of Western occultism, what is the big distinction between, say, a high pagan understanding of, I guess magic and the occult as a pair like what is the distinction between that and something we'd see more in the world according to plato and so on the way i would start to explain that is that what i'm calling in in true to the earth what i'm calling sort of a high pagan culture is an entirely oral culture so an oral civilization so they have no writing Versus the development of writing and the influence that that has on our psychology and what we are able to think and make understandable in words. So the main distinction here, then, would be between an oral civilization and a literate civilization. It's a civilization with writing. And what's the distinction there is that let's start with the literate civilization because we can see what new capabilities literacy opens up within a society. The distinction there is that a society with writing is able to do a few things that an oral society is either unable to do or finds very difficult. One of the big things is that a society with writing has abstract ideas. It's able to access abstract concepts and 
perhaps most importantly, these abstract concepts become some of the most important and powerful concepts in that society's sort of way of conceptualizing the world. So it's a distinction between abstraction versus really in the the oral context, particularity, concreteness, and interrelatedness. And I can I can say more about that, but sort of an easy way to think about this is that, you know, we, we live in a literate society. We've had this now for thousands of years. And if you think about major ideas that are important to us, the way that we really approach almost everything, it's from the standpoint first of the abstract. So what is a dog? We have a concept, sort of a concept of the category dog, dog as mammal, dog as, you know, having these various characteristics. And then there's all these particularities, you know, this fluffy over here and that fluffy over there that we group into that abstract category. Right. When we first really see this kicking off, it's in Plato or perhaps in Socrates or Plato's depiction of Socrates, where Socrates is constantly hunting for the general definitions of words, usually ethical words. And his audience doesn't understand what he's looking for. So he'll say, what is courage? And they'll say, oh, courage is when Achilles did this thing on the field of battle. And then Socrates will say, no, 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 I want what is courage. And if you know the Greek, you can feel the awkwardness because he doesn't even know how to say what he wants. I want to know what courage is in itself by itself. It's this phrase that he has to sort of invent to get them to understand, right? So not courage in Achilles, but courage in itself by itself, in isolation, in general, right? He has no way of saying in general, but he's looking for the abstract of what courage is. And it's clear that his society doesn't have an easy grasp on what he's looking for. Because in the sort of oral instantiation of ancient Greek culture, courage would be understood as various concrete particular examples and the way those examples relate to each other and overlap. And to understand courage, you would look at a lot of courageous actions or rather you would hear a lot of stories of courage. So the high pagan civilizations are the oral civilizations that are living within a world that is conceptualized through plurality no overarching abstract oneness. So there's only the many. There's no one origin. There's no one creator. There's no one foundation. And the way that these particulars are understood in terms of their nature is through their relationships with each other, their histories, and their concrete sort of behavior and and activity. There's a lot else I could say, but that's sort of the start of that distinction. Now you had asked about the occult, but go, go ahead. Well, actually, well, that actually was where I was going to go, because how does this sort of link in then? So if we have a literate society which has abstract concepts and the idea that, you know, any one thing is an example of this, this notion of it, this, this higher form, how does that link into things like, say, sympathetic magic or the sort of astral magic that we hear about with things like the Picatrix or... Yes, yeah. I yeah, guess. absolutely. That that becomes sort of what I pre- present in my paper for the International Necromancy Consortium. That becomes what's really the foundational default setting for most of occult understanding in the the Western world. We'll say for you know I don't know I, I, I I'm I'm tempted to say for thousands of years right for for two thousand years or more. But definitely you see it become very standard in Agrippa and then on from there. So what is it? It's the idea that something has the characteristics it has 
and it has the powers that it does, the occult powers, because of the sort of abstract essences or energies or virtues that it embodies, and then also the way that it corresponds to abstract forces. So a given stone is able to accomplish certain things magically because of its correspondence to other things and the way in which it embodies, let's say, the force of the sun, right? So it has the virtue of the sun within it, and there's sort of that. And then also this solar energy connects the stone to, let's say, solar entities like solar archangels and so on and so forth, right? So you get these great sympathetic chains and ladders, right? Which also ends up setting up very sort of strict systems of hierarchy of what rules what. And usually when you, and this this comes, you know, almost entirely out of Plato, but as you climb those ladders, you get from the actual stone that you can hold and feel to something like the sun, to something like the power of the sun, to the intelligences connected to the sun, and so on and so forth, god names that are related to the sun. And the further up the ladder you go, the more abstract and general these concepts become. So that the most powerful things are the ones that are the most abstract, and the ones that really you can say the very least about. You see this in Plato with what ends up being called his theory of the forms, or his theory of ideas, where you have these perfect unchanging things, forms, ideas that are things like the good and the beautiful. And by the time you get to the level of this perfect, unchanging, eternal form of the good, you can say absolutely nothing about it. It's Mm. totally abstract. And it's also the most important and the most powerful and the most fundamental thing in the entire sort of system. And yet it's devoid of all actual meaning. So, you know, you you get these sort of chains of sympathies. That's where the sympathetic magic largely comes from, is from this platonic understanding. Go ahead. How that kind of conception of the world, basically in general, like this is like a totalizing system for all of existence. Yes. Like, how does that affect conceptions of necromancy in general? Like, what's like, I'm, I'm trying to think of a good specific example of a necromantic practice. Okay, for example, there are a number of sources on necromancy that point to Richard Cavendish reporting something that you and I talked about a little bit that is probably yes. a Mr. Crowley novel. So like, it seems like Crowley may be doing a fictional thing and then gets taken up as being real because lies become the truth if you have enough power, which I think is something lovely from True to the Earth. And in this, this, this ritual, it's something along the lines of if you want to raise the dead, you need to adopt a fairly dead way of being first. So you need to eat no leavened bread, have no salt. The only meat you can have is dog meat, because dogs are, I believe, the the one of the creatures of Hecate. So there's a kind of, you know, death association there. And you're supposed to wear the clothes of dead people and just be like, sort of get on the dead wavelength as hard as possible before yes. doing elaborate ritual with a lot of, you know, poking a corpse with a stick, but like magically poking it with a stick, a magic stick. So, like, where would that fit in in this sort of worldview? So, the the interesting thing, and this is some of what I play on in the paper as well, is which these are going to be published in in a volume. So, even if people can't attend the conference, or if the conference doesn't end up happening, or whatever, there's there'll still be a volume of it eventually. Anyway, so part of what I do in that paper is that what's interesting is that the ritual 
mechanics are very often such that they can remain the same whether you're dealing with it from what we could call one worldview or another, right? From a high pagan worldview to a sort of, let's say, modern, early modern worldview or, you know, whatever, right? The mechanics are usually maintained. And part of the reason I think this is, although this is subject to debate, is that we keep things that work. (laughs) So the mechanics that work are the mechanics that work. And there are various different techniques and strategies, but by and large, the ones that survive are the ones that have been effective. So the mechanics can be understood according to different worldviews or theories. So for example, that sort of making yourself as similar to the dead as possible in order to work with the dead. Is that purely a modern practice or not? Well, no, right? We can find things like that in an ancient pagan context. And the question ends up being, how do we understand what's going on there? And how do we understand why they work? And there's some subtle things that I might want to consider here too, but I'll put it aside for a second, right? So We can understand this in terms of something like setting up sympathy between yourself and the dead and taking on something like, gosh, I mean, the energy or virtue in scare quotes of death, right? So you're coming to embody and become closer to the thing in terms of some abstract death energy. But the funny thing is, is that usually the more what sometimes would get called, although I wouldn't like this formulation, but low magic, the more sort of folk magic, the more earthy magic, usually actually is already closer to an old oral and pagan approach to these things. So how would you understand that in a pagan oral context? Well, you would understand it as a process of gaining entrance or nearness to literally the land of the dead, to the underworld. It's about a crossing, a crossing over or a crossing down, you know, passing down into the underworld or approaching the underworld. Now, that same practice can be understood either way. We could say like, oh, I eat dog because dog has the energy of, let's say, the dark moon or the energy of Hikata or so on and so forth. So I'm imbuing myself with this energy. Okay, well, this is an abstract idea, right? The abstract idea of the energy of the dark moon or the energy of a specific goddess understood as something like an essence I can take on and so on and so forth. Well, that's an abstract way of understanding it. Or correspondence, right? I now vibrate with the energy appropriate to this or with, you know, all of these models are based on different ways of parsing this idea of abstract connections between things and abstract forces. Now, how would we understand it alternatively? It's in terms of actually making oneself more of a denizen of the realm that you are gaining access to. Now, I... I wanted to mention a a slightly subtle point that I had said before. I think there is a difference here, though. There's a bit of a a mistake that might be happening here in that type of ritual where you, you know, wear like death shrouds and you avoid overly sort of lively or fresh or fertile things and so on and so forth. And the mistake is in trying to draw near to something like a dead body rather than the dead. So I'd mentioned before when we had chatted briefly about this, that I think there's a mistake going on here where you are identifying with what's left behind when death occurs, 
rather than with the dead themselves. So think about it, let's say in an early modern sort of Christian context, right? Are you going to try to make yourself like the corpse, which is what's going on here? Or are you going to try to make yourself like, let's say, purgatory? where it was understood you could access something like the dead. Or, you know, if you want to go sort of more in terms of saint work with heaven, right? What are you trying to draw near to? I think that there's a mistake in trying to draw near to the dead body rather than with the land of the dead, let's say, with the underworld or something like that. Those two things may be very, very different. Does that make some sense? Oh, yeah, of course. And also, I think that's just a good, like, pro tip for anyone who's trying to do necromancy is, you know, you're not trying to talk to a dead body, you're trying to talk to what might have inhabited, unless we decide that we don't like Cartesian dualism, which is good, because I, I I reject Cartesian dualism yes, on like a yeah. political sort of level. But, because, you know, brains. Yeah, yeah. They're this, you know, you, you think with meat anyway. And, and, and I mean, there's a, a point there about materia, right? About about stuff, right? That the stuff is connected to what it was and how it's been transformed, right? So this is why working with, you know, let's say graveyard dirts or working with parts of the dead and things like this have, well, this is one understanding of why it might be effective, right? That it is connected to the entity in the underworld, let's say, that you're trying to connect, right? So those those connections and relationships remain. They remain in the history of the thing, but you don't want to mistake the, you know, the entity in, in the underworld with the dead body rotting in the grave or something like that. The body's still connected, but it's it's not the same. So what would be a high pagan understanding of the same ritual? Like we're talking about something that is much more based around the idea of location, right? Yeah, yeah. So let me talk about catabasis, right? So the paper is entitled Every Nekuomantia. My Greek pronunciation, by the way, is horrifying, even though I, I do know ancient Greek fairly well. But basically, every act of necromancy is a catabasis, right? So what's the idea here? Well, a catabasis is going down into the underworld, right? It means literally in ancient Greece, just going down. So for example, there's a famous ancient Greek work called the Anabasis, and that's the going up, right? And that's the story of someone coming up through, you know, a difficult sort of messy military expedition coming up from the sea. So trying to escape from the sea. So there's coming up, there's going down. So the catabasis, usually when we talk about it, is the going down into the underworld. And it was done by many, many people, right? We've got tons of these stories. Orpheus goes down into the underworld to try to save Eurydice. Heracles or Hercules goes down into the underworld. Odysseus goes into the underworld. Aeneas goes into the underworld. So all of these are very famous catabasises. Catabasai? That sounds right. Yeah, so that's the catabasis, right? Probably the first and most famous catabasis that we have is the descent of Inanan. So the descent of Inanna is the, the story of a goddess going down into the underworld. Okay, so that's catabasis. How would a oral culture understand this type of ritual? How, how might, well, certainly how would ancient Greek context understand this type of ritual? It's in terms of being part of the catabasis. Right? So we are performing the actions which bring us nearer to the land of the dead. So you had mentioned place, and place is one of the main chapters in the paper. And the basic idea is this, is that part of the mechanics of necromancy is changing place. So changing from being in the world of the living to being in the world of the dead. 
So if every act of necromancy is this process of going down into the underworld, every act of necromancy has to have a way of navigating this change of place. Now, not all of us go to, let's say, a shoreline on the edge of the underworld like Odysseus does in Homer's Odyssey, and then can access the land of the dead by being sort of on its boundaries in that way. But if you look at rituals of necromancy, what do they usually involve? Very often what they involve is at least part of the ritual involves going to a cemetery or a graveyard and doing some work there. I mentioned in the paper that what we can see is that the cemetery or the graveyard becomes sort of in the world of the living, something like a suburb, a border, a boundary, and in between space to the world of the dead, right? So you set up this sort of existence on the boundary. And then when you, let's say, later on do a ritual in your own temple space or, or at home, what's going on there? Well, you're trying to change the space you're in, right? You're trying to bring your space, your place to the underworld. Or perhaps another way to put it is that you're annexing it to the underworld or perhaps to reverse the activity there. The underworld is annexing it, right? The, the Let's say the rulers of the underworld are perhaps for a time or perhaps permanently annexing that space as part of their domain. And that allows for the interaction and the relationship that develops. Does that make so, some sense? Go ahead. Oh yeah. So then would, say, a contemporary practi practitioner of necromancy, would it, we, it would be good for them to conceive then of the end of the ritual not as a banishing so much as a reclaiming of the space that they're in. Yes, yeah, absolutely. I mean, if that's the, the goal they're working towards, right? This, this sort of has implications for how we understand the magical circle, because very often the, the circle is understood as, you know, and th this is all pretty standard, right? As a system of defense, as insulating you from the forces that you're calling forth, as somehow a wall between you and those forces. But there's a lot of cases in which this doesn't make sense at all, especially when you're calling these forces without perhaps wanting that insulation or that defense. What you want from them might require a intimate connection with them or something like that. But certainly when thinking in terms of necromancy, I think that the ritual we do and the ceremony we do to empower and consecrate and so on and so forth, the temple space, and if there's a circle involved and so on, this is actually more about setting the space which is to be annexed, right? Setting the space that becomes part of the underworld. So it both would change how you would close your work, because at closing, if you really want this door, so to speak, to be shut, you would want to engage in something like taking that territory back, for sure. But it also makes clear some dangers that might not be commonly thought of. In other words, the ritual circle isn't going to protect you from what's going on. If you're engaging in a work like this, you are allowing the underworld to take some of the world of the living, and with it, it's taking you in those moments, right? You are part of what is annexed. And I don't think you can actually avoid that and have the successful work, Yeah. right? There's no mechanics at least based on my view, I, I could be wrong, but based on the, the view I'm proposing, there's no mechanics whereby you can both 
make the catabasis and not make the catabasis at the same time. The question becomes instead, how do you do so safely or as safely as possible, right? How do you navigate underworld guardians and so on? And I think this is one way that we can understand a lot of the tech and the mechanics in a lot of grimoire work, especially goetic sort of grimoire work, that there's a lot of tech there that helps you to navigate underworld guardians. For example, spirits that are particularly good at invisibility. And and a lot of people have talked about this. Peter Gray has and, and Jake Stratton Kent, that these invisibility works are often about navigating safely the underworld. They're about catabasis. And a lot of the equipment, like the lion skin belt I mentioned in my paper, and we can talk more about this, is about a type of protection you can have in, in the course of entering a space in which you have very little defense, right? You actually have, you are very vulnerable in that space. So how can you have protection? It's not by setting up a circle that allows you to enter the space, but not enter the space. No, no, no. You're going into the underworld, right? The question is, you know, how can you do so safely? So actually, that's a great question. How can you do so safely? Well, I mean, I, I think it's always a question of how safe, right? None of this is foolproof and so on. This type of stuff is always going to have its risks, right? But if we look at some of the tech that I'm interested in, some of the grimoire techniques, for example, the lionskin belt I find interesting. There's a moment in Lucan's Necchiomantia, right? So Lucan was a Roman comic poet, so to speak. And he writes a story about an experience of necromancy. And granted, it's meant to be comic, but I, I think he's drawing on actual practices. And in it, the person who is undergoing necromancy is told to carry a lyre, just like Orpheus would have, and is told to wear a lion skin sort of cape, just like Heracles or Hercules would have, and so on, right? And the idea basically is this, that he is entering into the story that already exists of successful necromancy, of successful catabasis, right? He is going to go into the underworld, but he's going to do so in the manner of Hercules, in the manner of Orpheus, right? Now, he's not fooling the spirits, right? It's not like the underworld guardians aren't going to know he's not actually Hercules or he's not actually Orpheus, but instead he's stepping into that ongoing tradition and that ongoing practice. The, the way I put it at one point, actually at the end of the paper, is that in practicing necromancy, we enter into living myth, right? In other words, these are stories that still live on in the same way that, you know, our world is made up of stories that go on, right? The story of New York for you and I, right? The story of the grimoires, right? The story of magical practice, right? These are all narratives that we step into that are ongoing. You see this with, you know, how many books are supposedly written by Solomon. There's the story of Solomon's books, right? And every single book fits into that story that is identified with it. And when you take out that book, you enter into Solomon's story. In the same way that in wearing the lion skin, we enter into Hercules' story of successfully entering and leaving the underworld safely. So this is a type of protection, and it sets up a distinction between how it would be understood in the, let's say, early modern context versus the, the ancient oral pagan context. The lion skin, nowadays, if you ask someone, what's the lion skin all about? They'd say, oh, well, you know, it is identified with the sun, it's solar power, it has the virtue and the energy of the sun, something like 
that. You get that sympathetic connection with solar power, and the sun makes us brave when facing dangerous spirits, and the sun also gives us a type of royal dominance over those spirits. And so, you know, it's all about this connection to the abstract nature of the sun. What I'm suggesting is that, no, 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 it's it's very concrete, right? You know, Hercules killed a lion and he wore the lion's robes. I mean, wore the lion's fur. And Hercules therefore changes the meaning of it as it enters into his story. And when we now take up the lion, right, the lion skin, we enter into Hercules's story. And it's that ongoing reference and that ongoing living myth that we become a part of. And that myth has power. In fact, the, the basic idea is that in the oral context, what things are, anything, you, me, the computer that I'm staring at right now, what these things are is the relationships they have. Everything is defined relationally because there's a interconnected pluralism here such that even something discrete is not a single thing. It's many things. It's what it is in all the different ways that it references everything else, right? There's this web of relationships. Now, if you think about that as, as quite literally the being of the thing, its nature, its, its, its reality, what the thing is, is these relationships, these ongoing changing relationships. Well, relationships are stories, right? So when I talk about stories and I talk about myths, I'm not talking about something like, I don't know, the intellectual narration that I hold in my head. It's not a psychological entity. It's a real entity in the world, right? We're living in stories and we're living out stories. And these are not simply human inventions. They're the fabric of reality is these stories. So when I put on the lion skin and identify myself with Heracles, right, when I do that, I enter into that living story that we already know the spirits respect from the story itself, right? We already know it has established power in the underworld. And that power, sort of that successful narrative continues with us, right? With us entering into it. So do you get the sense then that, because I mean, like when I think of like a lot of, like especially Goetic models mm-hmm. of magic and this idea of like, you know, legal authority or something like that. There is this strong sense of dominance and and imposing hierarchy in certain strains of Western magic. This idea of like, you know, I am making the spirits do this through my association, abstract or otherwise, with this sort of more dominant spirit, you know, in the name of God, et cetera, I do this to you. It's in something like the, the Catabasis that you're describing from the necro to the what what is the uh what is lucan's story called necromantia the necromantia you know it's a comedy is it is it funny um ish it's it's trying to make fun of there, there's a lot in there this is actually just a small piece of of a larger work but it's trying to make fun of practitioners of divination and practitioners of necromancy and so on and so forth so they're the object of this type of assault but you can find similar types of ideas in more serious depictions as well but is it funny it, it's kind of funny i don't know roman roman comedy i think loses a lot comedy tends to right comedy loses more than anything else in the passage of time tragedy can survive in ways that that comedy really tends not to translate well from one period to another so you know i i think that the roman comedy is not that great by our standards in something like the model that that, that suggests uh, you are 
sort of grafting yourself into a narrative through these associations. You are, you know, becoming another Hercules in this way. Is there a sense that in doing this, you are engaging in some kind of law of narrative that means these things sort of have to successfully be carried out again because there's a sort of recursion going on? Or is the idea that in making this sort of gesture, you are doing something that is amenable And so in the same way that like, you know, when you show up at your parents' house for Christmas and you put on the the jammies, the big family jammies or something like that, you know, you're not making your parents be nice to you or more sort of, you know, parental in that moment, but you are sort of encouraging it by putting it in the air and there's sort of a recognition of a gesture going on. Yeah, yeah. So you're the going home for Christmas with the jammies thing is a, a great example, right? You're stepping into a type of ongoing story, a type of tradition. You're taking your role in that ongoing story, and taking your role in that ongoing story makes certain outcomes more likely and makes other outcomes less likely. But stories change. And stories fall apart. And even though I've done that doesn't mean we don't end up having a huge fight on Christmas Day and people storm out and things go awry and so on and so forth, right? The story is always open to alteration. There's no law of recursion that is absolute in in that sense. So it's just like, you know, thick in terms of tradition works very well. You step into a tradition and traditions change over time. Every instantiation of the tradition is different from the previous ones, right? They evolve, they alter, they shift, and sometimes they uh, hit dead ends and sometimes they fall apart and sometimes they fail. And all these things remain very possible. To go back to a point, you had brought up the sort of role of hierarchy and domination in a lot of interpretations of sort of goetic practices in particular and so on. And of course, you know, this is an ongoing debate as well. There there are some practitioners and writers who stress that more than others, just as there's some grimoires that stress that more than others and so on. But what's interesting is that one of the differences between what we get post-Plato, which means, you know, in the ruling monotheistic sort of ways of thinking, a part of the argument in my book is that whether we want to or not, whether we recognize it or not, we live in a monotheistic framework. Even if we're atheists, right? We live in a monotheistic framework. Because even if we're atheists, we think that the universe is one stable, solid thing, that it has certain consistent laws that, or maybe patterns that we can arrive at, that things are reducible to the smallest or the, the most general or so on and so forth, right? So the distinction then between a monotheistic worldview and the oral pagan worldview is that if you're committed to a fundamental pluralism, in other words, it's many all the way down. There's no singular foundation of existence or truth. There's no singular origin of existence. It's many from top to bottom, from beginning to end. When you're committed to that, hierarchy becomes very, very different. In other words, if I'm working within, let's say, a Catholic framework, we know who's on top, right? The one single ultimate origin, right? The God. We know that there's the lieutenants and various forces beneath him. We can try to arrange ourselves so that we step into that hierarchy and we, you know, are channeling the authority of the lieutenants and all the way up the chain, right? These great chains of being. Okay. What if we're thinking in terms of what Orpheus has to do or what Pericles has to do? 
Well, you know, there's authority in those worlds, right? There, there's authority in those contexts. You know, Zeus is still king and, and so on and so forth. But the authority is very different. So, for example, if you look at Zeus, Zeus was not always king. He was not always king of Olympus, and he will not always be king. That's part of the story. Part of the story is that he is king because he was clever and he made good alliances, and he was able to make compromises, and all of these things are exceptionally delicate, and eventually they will fail. Because the structure of the cosmos is such that things will change, and very often those changes also affect the sort of most powerful figure currently on the stage, right? And that figure will fall, even if it's the figure seemingly at the top, right? So it's a cosmos shot through with contradictions and tensions with no single force that can bring all those contradictions and tensions into harmony or into alignment. Okay, so what does that then mean for someone like Orpheus or Heracles or the practicing magician or so on? What it means is that where power can come from, I won't say where it only comes from, but where power can come from is the conflicts and contradictions within the various structures of the cosmos, right? So one way to think about it is this. Let's say I want to be able to accomplish something that most humans cannot. I want to talk to a spirit of the dead or whatever the case may be. Well, what might I do? Well, I might become really buddy-buddy with a powerful figure. Let's say I become buddy-buddy with, you know, Hermes or something like that, right? Hermes is, you know, great for being able to go to the underworld and so on. So I want to become friends with Hermes. The problem is that the gods very clearly are fickle. They're not trustworthy, right? The idea of absolutely good divinities and this was one of plato's big things right this is why you know socrates often argues against the standard common understanding of the gods in ancient athens is that the gods aren't good and they're not honest they're constantly lying and deceiving and changing their form and they're not trustworthy right troy is a great example here right that the city of troy troy was deeply deeply beloved by zeus and yet Zeus takes part in, you know, dooming it, right? He does so at times reluctantly, but the fact that Troy was loved by so many of the gods can't save it. And we get the sense that even Zeus can't save it. So there are these powers that come and go and these formulations that come and go that overpower even what you might think is the greatest authority. So I want to talk to the dead, so I become buddy-buddy with Hermes. I'm not always going to be able to depend on that. I'm not always going to be able to trust the authorities that I think I can trust. So what you see instead are, and think about some of the great depictions of mythological occult practitioners. So we have, you know, Medea, we have Circe or Circe, we have Tiresias, who I could talk a lot about, right? So some of, and, and there are many others, but you get these mythological figures who are able to do things that most people can't do. And very often they do them in such a way that the gods don't approve. Sometimes they do them in opposition to the gods or in conflict with the gods, right? What's going on there? Well, the idea is this. Because it's a pluralistic world, there is no singular power, which means that all of the authorities in the universe, and this has political implications too. It's not just talking about gods. It's also talking about cities and talking about people. All of the powers are limited, they're all facing opposition from other powers, and they all have fractures and inconsistencies and failures within them. So the universe is like that, too. So if you think about one of the most important moments in the Odyssey for some of what I'm doing, Odysseus shows up on Circe 
I'll say Kirke because that's how it, it would have been pronounced, right? But Kirke's island, Kirke, when Odysseus's men go to her, she enchants them all, turns them into animals. Odysseus is wondering where they've got to, so he's going to find out. And Hermes stops him on the way and says, hey, look, you know, Kirke is a great enchantress. She's dangerous, and you have to have a way to fight her magic. Okay, so what happens? Hermes gives Odysseus this mysterious plant, and people have tried to figure out exactly what plant it was supposed to be and no one quite knows but it's usually called molly which is kind of funny but it ends up deriving from strength the term for strength or the the term for great so it's this powerful plant and where did the plant come from the plant came from the blood of giants who had been in conflict and had bled there on that island and in some interpretations, this also explains why Kirke can do some of what she does. She has special herbs on that island that come from the blood of quote-unquote giants. Another common interpretation of this is that it's the blood of the titans when they were in conflict with the Olympians, right? When Zeus overthrew his father. Or sometimes they're identified with the blood of even older gods. So for example, sometimes you hear identification with the blood of heaven, of Uranus, when Kronos cuts off his member and his drops of blood fall on the earth and do various things, including give birth to Aphrodite and the Furies, but also empower certain plants and stones. Okay, so what's going on here? Well, a human, Odysseus, can take up this plant and use the power of this plant to do things he shouldn't be able to do, like resist the power of Kirke. Or in other contexts, so like Aeneas, for example, uses a similar plant to enter the underworld, right? Why can he do that, right? The argument is that I give that these plants are part of a story, so we get this mythological element, but the concrete understanding is that they're literally drawn from the blood of conflicts amongst the gods, right? So what allows us to do various things is the fact that the forces of the cosmos are not in agreement, that they conflict, and we can manipulate those conflicts carefully and delicately, but we can manipulate those conflicts and we can benefit from the outcome of those conflicts. And this so is what happens with were, something like Molly, uh, the, the magical plants and so on. Go ahead. If one were to pursue necromancy with this idea of conflict in mind would this be a question of pitting a god of the underworld against some sort of traditional foe thereof would this be finding a way possibly through divination to i don't know be willing to take on a job for somebody at some point because i'm thinking because we were talking about video games before yeah. i think officially started the interview though who knows maybe we'll include that stuff in there as well so many video games are based around the idea of like you know someone gives link a mission to harvest turnips or something like that and in exchange they get something and that's always sort of the move yeah would would the techniques of necromancy at least incorporating this idea of like conflict would they rely on on something like that or or should this not be used by the the normal practitioner who's not involved in the mythological era where the gods are much more likely to directly intervene while you're on your way to something. It becomes a pragmatic question, right? So first of all, yeah, I think that's the right model, right? Thinking about this playing off of different 
powers and sort of squeezing through the cracks between various powers. And the way I would go with this is I would look at the stories and look at the myths. So for example, Orpheus, and there, there are versions of the Orpheus story, just like there are versions of the, the Hercules story and the Odysseus story. But Orpheus, why was Orpheus able to do what he did? And he fails in the end, of course, but why was he able to do what he did? Well, you know, he goes down into the underworld. He uses the power of his song, right, along the way, for example, to put Kerberos or Cerberus to sleep. And one understanding of the story, one telling of it, is that he can convince Hades and Persephone to let Eurydice go because he sings them a song that is so beautiful that it moves them. But a standard version of this, or one version, is that it moves Persephone, and Persephone then convinces Hades, right, that he has to use their relationship to get what he wants. When I said that it's a pragmatic question, is that, you know, all of this is 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 dangerous, and you don't want to step into the middle of a war that will crush you, right? That's the other sort of side of this story, is that, you know, the reason why humans have to be clever in using these different conflicts is that when you're not clever in using the conflicts, when you just sort of get into the middle of the conflict, you're easily destroyed, right? I mean, if you know, by and large, these forces will just crush you without thinking. So you have to be clever in using them. So it's not as simple as deciding, well, I want something and, you know, Hermes won't get it for me. What might be a power that is opposed to Hermes that I can draw on? You can do that, right? But you want to do it in a more clever sort of manner, right? So appealing to Persephone is when Hades won't give, right? Things like this. But Despite that, if you if you look at like the PGM, the Greek magical papyri, which I'm I'm fairly obsessed with, you get amazing examples there. And you also get in other depictions of necromancy, similar examples in the ancient world. These amazing depictions of calling upon forces that were counter to the forces that were understood to be in power. In other words, calling upon Kronos and using Kronos to threaten Zeus, right? And saying, look, you know, Kronos, I side with you. I'm not with them, right? You should help me, right? Or in the reverse, calling on Zeus or other figures like that and saying, do what I want or else I'll call on Kronos, right? You see the same thing. It's all throughout the, the Greek magical papyri, these sort of threats where do what I want or else I'm going to cause all kinds of trouble by stirring up these fights. I'm not going to be able to do much, but if I poke the bear and the bear runs at you, right, I'm going to upend the balance of the sort of political structure that is only tentatively in place in the heavens, so to speak. You see this as well with various ways of threatening gods and goddesses. So there's a depiction of necromancy in which the necromancer, this is from the ancient world, I'm trying to remember the, the source and it slips my mind right now. But anyway, it, the necromancer threatens to reveal how ugly Hecata is, right? To drag her into the light of the sun so that the world can see that she's ugly or something like that. Not that I'm saying she's ugly, but you know, this is in the text. Not a fight that you want to get in the middle of right now. Yeah, yeah, precisely, right? But there are sometimes these incredibly daring moments where gods are threatened. And the way that they're threatened is very often with either knowledge that they don't want 
out there. So it's not like I can do a whole lot. They could crush me. But if there's knowledge they don't want released and I have it, I can release that knowledge before they crush me, right? Or through, yeah, like I'd said, through appealing to contrary forces or threatening to appeal to contrary forces. So again, you find the conflict in the universe and you find a way to sort of put it to use, right, to benefit from that. But it's not without risk or danger, right? Uh, one of my favorite examples of this, by the way, talking about the plants that are empowered by the blood of the Titans, one of the examples I'm obsessed with is bloodstone, right? Heliotrope. Bloodstone is mostly green stone, green, gray, etc., with little drops of red in it, and it was understood to be blood. In the ancient Greek context, it was usually understood to be either heaven's blood or the blood of the Titans or Kronos's blood, right? So again, it's the same entity, same type of thing that Odysseus used in this powerful magical plant. The stone has the same characteristics. Now, the importance of the stone carries on all the way through to the early modern grimoires, where the standard sort of Christian understanding is that the blood you have there is the blood of Jesus, that he, you know, as he bled from the cross, it hit the stone and so on and so forth. And the idea is that the stone has power because it is literally that blood, right? You've stolen it not by bleeding the god yourself. Someone else bled the god, right? You're you're not going to get into that conflict. But the god's been bled. And now you can sneak in and take some of that blood and make use of it, right? And that's the power of the bloodstone, is that you're using the blood of the god that was spilled by someone else, so you're not directly responsible. But the power is still there. That's that's amazing. Actually, you make a, a point in the paper, I think, that like so much of our magic is effectively stolen. Yes, yeah, absolutely. And, and you know, the Promethean model that takes constantly different forms, right? The stolen nature of magical power that then gets repeated when you see sort of focuses on demons or Lucifer and so on and so forth, right? It's always an appeal to the thief who grants you this power or who can steal the power for you. Or sometimes in the more interesting models, I think, finding ways to steal it yourself, right? But yes, there's this element of, again, if you're taking advantage of these conflicts, a lot of that involves theft, which, you know, is what the gods do anyway, right? Again, a lot of this sounds, you know, once you get into the monotheistic framework, you get these ideas that, you know, it's rebellion, it's rebellious. There's an ethical interpretation to it that is lacking in a lot of the pagan oral context, because in the pagan oral context, this is what the gods do, and this is what humans have always had to do in order to survive, right? They have always had to play quick with, you know, the rules and with whatever power structure is in place, right? This has always been part of it. You, you see a great example of this in one of the understandings of the specific practices of sacrifice in ancient Greece. So, you know, in ancient Greece, let's say, you know, I'm sacrificing a lamb or whatever the case may be. I'm sacrificing an animal to, to Zeus. Usually what happens is that there's various protocols, but part of the process is that I cook a lot of the meat and keep it, right? And the people involved in the sacrifice eat it. Now, what is given to the gods is some of the meat, a portion of the meat, certainly the blood, right? But also, you take the fat and you wrap the fat around bones and you burn the fat, the skin, and the bones on the fire. And that's what the gods get. And there's a story, and there's a few different versions of it. Sometimes it's Prometheus that's understood to have done this, to have taught humans how to do this. But the story is that when humans were first learning how to make sacrifices to the gods, sometimes it's Prometheus who does this. Prometheus says, all right, well, we'll give you options, the gods, right? We'll give the gods options, and they can choose what they want, right? So 
you cook the fat over here with the bones and the fur, and you cook the uh, meat over there, and the gods get to choose what they want. And the gods are tricked into choosing the thing that smells better. In other words, they chose the fat, right? Because the fat smells like it's going to be tasty, but it's not, right? That's not where the food is, right? So the very practice of sacrifice in ancient Greece is sometimes understood to have been the outcome of trickery, right? Of tricking the gods into taking the the worst part of the sacrifice rather than the best part. And there's tons of stories of that, of humans finding ways to outsmart the gods because they have to. Right? I mean, anytime you see sort of a context where people are not at the top of the food chain, they have to find ways to negotiate, to trick, to sort of make do in those ways. Yeah. I feel like that's a point that is very much lost in contemporary culture, this idea that, uh, that like, any authority is one that has no legitimacy by right of being an authority. It's always one follows the other, not the other way around. Stepping back for a minute to, to, to necromancy, though I, there are other places that I, I want this conversation to go that we also have been doing this for about an hour. So if you need to leave at any time, it, I will not hold this I'm, against you. I'm in lockdown in my house, so what else do I have to do? <laughs> Fair. Actually, yeah, have you been getting up to a lot of magic on lockdown? Or is it harder with, you know, everyone on lockdown? So you yeah. can't, you know, take the room for something. The, yeah, there is the sense in which it's harder, right? New York City apartments being what they are, too, right? Space is not not huge. And everyone's home. So there, there's that, right? I've been doing a lot more of sort of working with materia that I've wanted to work with and haven't had the time. So I'd mentioned, for example, Bloodstone. And I've, I've always used, not always, but for years, I've used Bloodstone in a lot of what I do. But there was a process of sort of enlivening it and trying to bring out as much of those powers connected to the blood of gods and whatnot as possible. So I've been doing that, and that's something that can be done on the small scale through little sort of processes of consecration and prayer and so on and so forth. So little things like that. So for example, I'm, I'm making an incense right now I want to make for a while, and the method of making it takes about a month, and you do part of the process every day. So it's something I hadn't had time for before, but now that I'm home, you know, it's pretty easy to you know, spend an hour or so grinding some herbs every day while I'm up to other things to make this incense. So I've been doing a lot more of those things, sort of little creative things that I've wanted to be able to do, but I haven't had the time for. Well, it's a nice, it's a nice little silver lining to the horrible crisis. I've been thinking yeah. it's time to finally uh, give the hip hammer on a serious go, just because, you know, those, uh, those circles, there's a lot going on there. So it seemed like the kind of time consuming thing that you wouldn't necessarily be able to do very regularly unless you uh had a lot of time on your hands yeah absolutely so the distinctions we've been talking about in terms of you know literate society conceptions of necromantic activities and high pagan conceptions of the same activities are really just sort of these are people are doing the same things because they work but with different interpretive lenses of why they're supposed to be working but the processes are essentially the same or at least they, they remain sort of consistent or they kind of, you know, recur and return. Frequently, right? I mean, it's always super problematic to generalize across things like the Grim Wars or early modern practice, right? And things like that. So I'm sure we can find examples of things where it's like, oh, like that seems like a super medieval or modern invention. But then there's a lot of other stuff where I can say, look, I can understand how this would be understood in 
you know, the pre-literate ancient Greek society and how this would be practiced. Like I can see how this would fit in. So we get both. But I think a lot of what's interesting is that when you look at a lot of the grimoires, there's very little in terms of, let's say, theology, metaphysics, etc. Right. They, they don't explain very frequently why you do what you do. And sometimes when they do explain, it's like later editions and things like that. Instead, you get the practice and you're just supposed to do it. And then we get a whole lot of contemporary folks, for example, but people have been doing it obviously forever. But you get people then interpreting why you do this, like, yeah. you know, why should we do this and so on. And that's where a lot of the high level interpretation comes into play. But go ahead. And having uh, developed this sort of, I mean, it's not really a new interpretive framework because you're sort of reviving an mm -hmm. old... The, the, the fun game of hermeneutics, but like with this interpretive framework of necromancy as catabasis. Mm -hmm. I say catabasis, but like I said, my ancient Greek, so for, for those who, you know, studied ancient Greek with me and, and who know me from like grad school and whatnot, my ancient Greek pronunciation is famously bad, right? So I'm not committed to pronouncing things right. So I don't judge anyone else's pronunciations. Just picturing you now at the gates of the underworld and having to sort of say the password in ancient Greek. Yeah. And just a bunch of gods conferring with each other about what is that? Is, is that, that fair? It, does that work? That's, that's like the word, right? We know that word. Yeah. So have you been doing any experimentation using this lens to sort of say, oh, I can maybe take this practice, this practice and adapt this new part of it if I think of it as catabasis? Has yes. there been new necromantic tech you're working on? Yes. Okay. Yeah. Um. There's a limit to how much I may want to say about this, but certainly, like I've already mentioned the bloodstones and, and why they, why I understand them to have the power they do and sort of how they're used in that regard. So that's certainly a simple tech that comes into play. So, you know, all being understood that, you know, bloodstone is used in several grimoires. And again, Peter Gray talks a lot about bloodstone in one of his lectures. I forget where that is, but... But also, just in uh, ritual practice, this is part of my practice, right? This is part of my ritual practice. And some of it actually, I, I don't want to say too much about this, but some of it actually came out of several years ago when I had done a certain work. And then later on, I was at a cemetery I go to all the time, and I was talking to one of my dead spiritual advisors in the cemetery. And he said, look, what you did made a mess, and there's blowback coming. And to make up for that blowback, to divert it, to change it, we've got to do this thing. And he walked me through a process of catabasis that day, it wasn't even nighttime, in the cemetery, whereby I visited various spirits that were in need of succor and comfort and provided them what succor and comfort I could and provided them with whatever I could on that day as a process of dispersing the sort of blowback that was coming my way for things I had done. And that, this was several years ago, I think this was like six years ago now, but that was part of what got me thinking in these terms where there was definitely a catabasis that occurred. It obviously wasn't the earth opening up and gates, you know, of the underworld creaking open, but it was a very different type of experience than I've ever had before, where I was in the world, but I wasn't in the world in any way that I previously had been. And I was having encounters and performing actions that were very different than they would have been if I was just wandering around the cemetery doing quote unquote normal stuff. So it was a very, very strong experience. And that was 
sort of part of what got me thinking about this understanding of place and the way in which places change through the way that we enter into the story and the way that we bring the place into the story and and so on. And that then had echoes throughout a lot of what I've done and a lot of the sort of ceremonies and rituals I engage in. So do you typically, in terms of like, if you're working with the dead, do you typically head out? Because you're, maybe I I shouldn't say this, you're not super far from one Mm -hmm. of the big cemeteries in yeah, and that's that's my favorite one. That's the one I well favorite because it's convenient too. But it's amazing in some ways. Like there's all kinds of stories about a fiddle competition with the devil at a crossroads there, right? And it's supposedly right. the origin of the devil went down to Jordan. Like that story shows up in many different places, but the oldest documented version of it supposedly is here. But sorry, go ahead. I mean, that's just you know, New York City number one. Yeah. And I mean, it's super handy to have a crossroads in a graveyard where there's historical precedent for the devil periodically visiting. Like, that's just super handy. Go ahead. Nice to have it, you know? Yeah. Um, (laughs) When you're working with the dead, do you tend to favor going to an actual cemetery and doing that work there? Or do you just you know, let the realms of the dead colonize your living room for a night. So it's sort of both. And you see this in a lot of crib wars and a lot of necromantic texts, right? You you see the, the dual aspect. I'm trying to remember in my paper, I reference one that's from, you know, Scott's discovery of witchcraft, where you go out to the graveyard, you do certain things. If I remember right, you take grave dirt. Although actually I've been reading the excellent book of magic as well. And there's there's some reference to something very similar there too. But anyway, you then go back to your home and you do various rituals there. So it's sort of a two-sided thing. And I think that that fits pretty well with my practice. Very often I'll go to the cemetery as a preparatory element. I'll do various things there. Then I'll return home and that's where you can complete some of the rest of it. So for example, I won't go into too many details with this, but there is a specific spirit I want to talk to and I'm already in contact with you know a few allies in that cemetery. So by day, I went to that cemetery. I talked to my allies. I gave them various gifts and I asked them to bring this other spirit to me to be the ones who sort of set up the connection. And then I go home and that night, much later, I do the actual work where you, you know, my ritual space becomes an antechamber or, or you know, I, I make it part of the underworld and converse with that spirit. But the initial contact, the initial setup happens in the cemetery first. Now, it's not always that way. Sometimes it's reversed. But yeah, there's usually both sides to it. I, you know, it would be amazing to be able just to pop out and do all the work in a cemetery, but that's not appropriate for all rituals, but also it's it's super tricky for me at least, right? Being in a place that's so populated, you know, as New York, it, it can be hard to find a cemetery space where I could be doing fairly involved rituals at night at all safely in terms of mundane sort of authority and whatnot. So, you know, breaking into these cemeteries at night is a tricky endeavor that I try to minimize. <laughs> right. I mean, just uh, the amount of, of labor involved in that sort of thing. I think yeah, yeah. when I college or maybe shortly thereafter, because I was sort of still living in that town for a little bit, one of the, the reasons I think I had in the back of my head for trying to like get strong enough to do like a lot of pull-ups was so I could pull up into the cemetery there at night, which is not the best cemetery for, for sneaking into, because the only way out was to step on tombstones. Uh, and that just feels wrong. Though, of yes, course, they yeah. the tombstones. They didn't move the bodies. The bodies were somewhere else. Yeah. But that 
story. So I mean, it, it does make me jealous of people who live in sort of more rural situations where popping into a graveyard and doing what you do is not a huge deal. And there are some, you know, really great cemeteries and graveyards in the Hudson Valley and in the Adirondacks and things like that that are much more accessible by evening than a New York City graveyard. I mean, perhaps that in this uh, in this crisis that we're in right now are both great arguments for the magic folk of New York City to try to find their way to some more, how you say, uh, rural environs. But, you know, a little Decameron kind of thing going out there. <laughs> Actually, speaking of the crisis, one of the things that I did want to ask you about is, you know, so True to the Earth, great book, wonderful book, came out in October of 2018. I want to say the 15th of October, maybe the 10th. Maybe. I, I actually don't know off the top of my head. But... In that, you not only talk about these distinctions between between high pagan cultures, oral cultures, and sort of literate pagan cultures, and what that sort of means about the way that people in contemporary society conceive of the identity of things, their relationship to the world and nature and all that, but also what implications this would have for our political consciousness. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I, I've been wondering, you know, a, a large span of time really actually no a small amount of chronological time but you know decades happen every week now so yeah. a great deal of of time as it is experienced by sentient beings has passed since then and now we're in the middle of a medical crisis a societal crisis that is also a political crisis so has your thinking changed at all since 2018 about the lessons that we can learn and use from high pagan societies and trying to imagine what our political world could be. No, no, I, I, I don't think it's changed. I think that it's made more apparent the importance of learning from these sort of oral high pagan insights. So for example, part of what I talk about in True to the Earth is the way in which abstraction changes our understanding and our experience of value, right? So, you know, value is is a word I'm a little obsessed with and a concept I'm a little obsessed with. And if, if you trace it etymologically, it ends up tying into things like valor, etc., right? And also, ultimately, all of these things end up connecting with fire and light, right? Value is something that shines out at you. So something is valuable because it shines for you. It reaches out and grabs you in some way. And an oral sort of high pagan context would understand value as real. In other words, we could call it something like a realist understanding of value. Things are valuable because of what they are and the relationships that they stand within, and that value is real. Now, once you move into an abstract understanding of value, that sort of reality of them gets washed out. In other words, this is where, and this is a very complex type of argument that shows up in the book, and I'm not going to try to rehearse it all now, but what this is where sort of capitalism certainly steps into it. In other words, a thing value ends up being a thing's value, let's say, on the market, right? The price for it, what it costs or what it can produce and so on. So you get a very different understanding of value. Now, what's interesting is that in our everyday lives, we sort of use both understandings of value. However, very often when pushed into crisis, we revert 
to the abstract sort of capitalist framework of this, sort of a heavily utilitarian framework. So for example, I, I use this example with my students a lot. When a relationship is in crisis, we'll very often start saying, oh, well, I realized that I was investing more in the relationship than they were. Right. And how are we understanding the relationship there? It's not as a connection, right? It's as some sort of banking exchange. I invest something, you invest something back. And as long as we both end up getting something of value there, then the friendship or the relationship is healthy. But that's, you know, really not how you would understand a relationship in terms of actual interconnection, whereby by having a relationship, by being friends, by being lovers, whatever the case may be, we become part of each other, right? We become interwoven in a way that talking of some sort of contractual investment model really fails to understand what's going on there. Now, okay, so society gets pushed into crisis like we're in right now. And what happens? Almost immediately, we revert to the utilitarian sort of abstract understanding of value. So you start hearing all of these numbers. And the numbers are important, right? But the numbers of the potential dead and the numbers of the infected, but also the numbers of the unemployed and the numbers of stock values and all of this stuff, right? And the whole game becomes how we end up sort of associating these abstract numbers with each other, right? So, you know, all right, a million dead, is that better or worse than, let's say, five years of a serious depression, right, economically, right? How many should we allow to die in order to avoid some sort of economic cataclysm, right? I mean, this is the, the debate you hear in politics every day, right? What, what number of people can get sick and die? What cost are we willing to pay in order that stocks aren't totally destroyed or in order that the economy isn't totally wrecked and so on? Now, that in a moment of crisis, we revert to that almost inevitably, but you also end up getting the very jarring experience of how that doesn't match up with your experience of real lived value. In other words, when you tell me that my grandma's life is, you know, this number point in reference to the stock market and a potential recession and a potential depression, I just don't give a damn. Right. When you tell me that, you know, my health is just this numerical point in relation to, you know, how important it is that the economy keeps running, there's a very jarring experience of disconnect where many people are starting to get the feeling, and I think this is a good thing, that this way of understanding lives and value just doesn't capture them. Right, that we're not understanding the value of people's lives, of their health, of their safety, of their security. And that the frameworks we have in place that are the frameworks used by the most powerful forces in our society are frameworks that utterly fail to do justice to what it is to value something, for something to matter. They can't capture what it is for something to matter. One way to think about this that I put in True to the Earth is that you'll understand if you're dealing with something like a sort of, let's say, a realist understanding of value versus an abstract sort of calculative utilitarian understanding of value. You'll understand what you're working with if you ask yourself, what is it that is not for sale? In other words, what couldn't be bought from me? Or what would I not allow to have a price tag? What is it that if you put a price tag on it, I would say, no, 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 there's no price, right? That this is 
can't be done. And when we get into these utilitarian calculations, everything has a price, right? I mean, you hear this when people talk about climate change or when the old sort of ideas, and not old, it's still a reality. But if you think about the old movie about nuclear war, why can't I remember the name sort of comedy? Doctor's Yes, Dr. Strangelove, right? Where they're calculating, well, you know, how many people can die? You know, we'll have this war and maybe 20 million will die. It's interesting that the numbers of what we kick around these days with with the virus sometimes overlap with the numbers of the calculations of, you know, a nuclear war and how many would die. So you get these sort of calculations of how many can die and how many we can literally sell, right? What What are we willing to sell to maintain our economy as we currently understand it and as it's currently structured. Because of course, that's the point. The point is that we could structure it very differently and understand it very differently. And suddenly those calculations would no longer be necessary. So this is really how many people are we allowing to die so that we don't have to do something crazy like have a more economically just system right? or tax certain people more and so on. Right. But Anyway, when you get into these crisis situations, you look out and you're like, oh, wait, no, like, yeah, uh, society thinks that there's a price for your grandma, right? I mean, society thinks that there's a price for you, right? That we can sell your neighbors, right? That every single thing has a price tag. And in these sort of larger fantasies of the end of the world, when the rich sort of calculate, all right, how much do we really need in order to move off world if things get too bad and yada, 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 right? When you see those sort of models, again, it's a calculation, right? I mean, how expensive is it really? to allow most of the human race to die and so on right so when you're fully into that framework that calculates that's a fundamental effect or outcome of this move into an abstract understanding of what it is to exist and what it is to have value, right? That everything can be understood in terms of everything else. In other words, everything is commensurable. Everything can be measured and the value of grandma can be measured, right? The value of every life can be measured. The value of a million lives can be measured, of 10 million lives can be measured. And once you have that value, right, once you have that measurement, that price, you know what you can sell them for, right? And there's, I think more and more people are having the jarring experience, and many people already recognize this, but I think many people who hadn't are starting to. You have that jarring experience of saying, wait a minute, there's something horrific about even doing the calculation." right? There's something so off. So I think that this overlaps very much with my discussion of value and the way in which an abstract understanding of reality that becomes central to monotheism then gives rise to the capitalist understanding of reality. And this overlaps with a lot of the points that Marx makes and so on. And I think that a lot of that is becoming much more real for people and much more concrete for people when we have conversations like, well, can we afford for a million people to die? How bad is that really? You know, two million people, is that really that big a deal? Right. You know, in comparison to crashing the stock market, you know, I think that brings things home. I think actually, so you brought up something interesting in there that I want to circle back to for a second, which is this idea of you, when you're talking about these abstract valuations that are being registered for a human life or some vast number of human lives compared to the stock market or something like that, you mentioned that the the entity making the valuations is, I think you said society. Society has a value for this life. But of course, society is itself sort of an abstract term. Yes. And I think this idea that there's a, I mean, I perceive a hopelessness in American politics. It's been around for a long time in the sense that 
you know, you you want to make a change, you want things to be different, but society in a general abstract way doesn't let it happen. That there is a kind of it's not even like there's a there's a you know, you punch a wall and the wall hits your hand. It's that you throw a punch and it just sort of falls flat because there's just nothing concrete to meet it. Do you do you think a I mean, first of all, do you accept the premise of this assessment? But also if you do or if you don't, do you see a pagan a high pagan way of approaching politics as offering some sort of amelioration to this kind of problem? Yeah. So certainly when I, I refer to society, right? It it's a shorthand. There are folks who would talk about it as a, a real entity, but it's a shorthand and a shorthand for what, right? Well, from the sort of oral view, again, you get these webs of interconnected relationships, which are also webs of power. So when we talk about power structures, what is this? Is this an abstract thing? Well, not really, right? It's the sense in which, you know, my boss, let's say, my supervisor has power over me, but not because of who she is. I mean, partially because of that, but not just because of that, but rather because of the way she stands in relation to the other people that are working at the university and the way that the university stands in relation to other concrete real entities and so on, right? So you end up with these sort of frameworks and relationships. And what's interesting is that you brought up there's probably a few things i'm gonna have to say and i may forget some of them but you brought up the idea of like who's doing the valuation and when you get this sort of interconnected worldview this weave what you realize is that this isn't you know the entity society and it's not any individual or collection of individuals in the society right the people within these webs have strikingly less control and power over them than one might think it's instead the way that all of our relationships are formulated now now, I think that what a crisis like this does, and sadly, what, I mean, it's it's a positive side to a sad thing, but what a lot of our really deep failure to adequately address what's going on does is make clear that we can and often do have different relationships to each other than are appreciated or even conceptualized within these standard webs and frameworks. In other words, when you know neighbors gather together to help get food to someone who's under quarantine and sick and can't leave their house, when I know someone, for example, who has a list and he's driving around town bringing food to folks who are immunocompromised, who can't food shop for themselves and can't leave the house safely, and he's set up a pretty involved protocol to make sure that he minimizes as much as possible their exposure even when he's leaving them a box and so on and so forth. You know, we, we start to see these relationships that are much more community-based, that are, are based in ways that are not the economic sort of relationships that we often seem to think dominate our lives, right? So I, I think that if you, if you look at True to the Earth, I offer some very tentative proposals for what a different way of understanding political life might look like. And a lot of that has to do with questions of authority and who has it and proposals of how you come up with a non-hierarchical, non-sort of authoritative sort of system, but also the 
underlying idea, one of the underlying ideas there is that you build social relationships based on our actual relationships, right? Based on our neighbors and our friendships, right? That this is the foundation. It's funny, you can capture the distinction here very simply by thinking just briefly about political philosophy, right? The the huge figures of political philosophy in the modern world are folks like Locke and Rousseau and Hobbes and, you know, social contract theory, right? And then, of course, you, you get Marx who's up to something fairly different. But so social contract theory proposes that society can be understood on this contractual basis. The same idea that, you know, like, oh, I was investing more in the relationship than they were. It's a social contract theory of relationships, right? But if you actually think about where societies come from and what societies are, they come from, you know, webs of mutual concern and care and value and aid. In other words, they come from family and friendships, right? The proto-society is friendships and families and those sort of frameworks of care, concern, and assistance. And I think that what a lot of this does, especially as our government so dramatically fails us in so many ways in this crisis, is that it throws us back onto those. And we come to realize maybe we don't have it and we really need those, or we do have those and we're very happy for them and we value them more, or we start trying to build them. And I think that that's... um, that overlaps fairly well with what I had in mind in, in a lot of True to the Earth when I was talking about social organization and, and questions of governance, I think. I think that's a really good point that in the absence, in the sort of power vacuum that we're seeing from the traditional forms of authority and recognized forms of authority, we're not seeing a counter authority forming. We're seeing instead networks of mutual aid. I have some friends who have pressured me to leave New York, right? New York's, you know, the center of this crisis for now. A number one, baby. You know, I've gotten, and and some of my friends are are fairly paranoid and whatnot, but you know, I've I've gotten calls to, you know, get out of there while you can, everything's going to collapse. And what I've tried to get them to see, and I I could end up being wrong and who knows, and you know, none of us know what's going on or what's going to happen. But I try to get them to see is that I am very fortunate to be in a situation where I know my neighbors, many of my neighbors, I am surrounded by people who I care for and who care for me. And that extends out in a fairly robust web so that even people in my neighborhood who I don't know, know people who I do know and care about them. And so they care about me sort of transitively and so on. So that I feel very, you know, knock on wood, very safe here. So even if there were a fairly you know, cataclysmic breakdowns and so on and so forth. I think my neighborhood and and my immediate environment were pretty good at taking care of each other. And I think that we would do a pretty darn good job, right? I trust the people around me. And a lot of the paranoia that comes out of this has to do with not always, right? Sometimes it's a lack of trust in in governmental forces and things like that, which there's good reason to not trust. But sometimes there's a lack of trust of the people around you. So there's sort of fantasies that you keep seeing popping up of like, oh, people are going to start rioting and attacking each other for goods and yada, yada, yada. And, you know, these things do happen from time to time in places. It's not to, to say that those aren't realities. But when that's your primary fear, 
it first of all shows a sort of insipid or beginning type of class consciousness where you're like, oh no, what if the poor people decide that they want something, right? Which is, you know, something that one should reflect on. <laughs> but class consciousness in America forever. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's the thing. I, 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 I saw someone talking about the stockpiling of guns by folks in, you know, rural contexts. And it's always the same type of fantasy, right? Oh, all, all those, you know, crime-ridden poor people are going to come and try to take away my, I don't know, toilet paper or what have you. So yes, yeah, there's that. But it, it's always sort of this very deep lack of trust in those around you. And sometimes there's a reason for not trusting those around you. Everyone's not in a great situation, but it certainly should bring home the fact that it becomes important to have trust in those around you or to have those around you in whom you can have trust. In other words, community becomes so important. I mean, that is sort of, it's interesting because I grew up in a rural place and the difference I have found living in the greatest city in the world, a number one, New York. I'm sorry, I can't talk about New York without actually it's like mostly a joke at this point. But <laughs> it is just feel like, you know, New York, I have a slice, Coney Island, 9-11, never forget, etc. But like, yeah. I think the difference for me has been that, you know, in a rural place, I felt watched, whereas here I felt like seen in a way that might be helpful. Oh, yeah. I think that makes sense. I, I grew up in not rural, very suburban, but in a small town, a half mile square town. And yeah, being watched was sort of the rule of my entire youth, where, you know, everywhere you went, people knew you and were watching. And like, I would have the cops called on me because I would go to the lake and like climb a tree. And people thought this was suspicious. And I would have the police show up and say, what are you doing? And I would say, I'm walking along the lake. And they would say, well, that's very suspicious. It's a lake, like, we're not supposed to walk along lakes, apparently, right? It wasn't private property, it was public property. Anyway, so yeah, that that type of experience versus, yeah, being in New York, where because there's so many people, you have the opportunity and sometimes the necessity of developing connections that are much more real and much more, I think, caring than you do in some other types of situations. Yeah. I think that's a great insight for people or a great, a great note to maybe leave on in terms of what people can do. But actually, if I may explicitly put the question to you now, if you could give one piece of advice for people in the midst of this crisis rooted in the sort of frameworks of true to the earth, what would it be? There's a few different ways to go with this. Which is why I'm, do all of them. Uh, I mean, you know, I'm yeah. one of the nice things about doing this as a podcast instead of the old radio show is I don't have a time slot anymore. Yes. So yeah. I, I don't have to cut people off as much as I used to. <laughs> yeah. And I'm, I'm as is obvious. I'm not good at speaking briefly. So here's the thing. Part of what comes to mind is this. One way that I understand, if, if you ask me what was lost in the transition from what I consider paganism and sort of oral societies to the domination of abstraction in literate societies and monotheism, part of what I think was lost is meaning. In other words, and it can be very hard for me to try to fully parse out what I mean here, but this is really, in a sense, the heart of what I'm thinking in these terms, that everything had meaning in the oral context, 
right? Everything echoed and vibrated with the meaning of the things around it. This is part of what happens with this interconnected web as the way that you understand what the reality of a thing is, that everything ends up being meaningful and connected in very sort of specific ways. And once you move into, you know, uh, let's say the modern context, you can end up having very rich elements of this meaning-filled world get rejected as superstition. In other words, what immediately came to mind was, well, you know, it's hard to see something like this happen and not think that it has something to teach us, that it's meaningful, that this isn't just chaotic chance. Now, the high pagan worldview has a lot of space for chance and has a lot of space for chaos, right? But the trick is always to then find a way to wrestle that chaos into some sort of meaning, right? It's sort of an interplay where chance becomes meaningful and chaos becomes meaningful. So yeah, what am I saying? Well, oddly enough, the first time that when when this stuff started to really heat up, echoing in my mind over and over was just the name Nemesis, right? Nemesis is an ancient Greek goddess of vengeance and of justice. It sort of lines up and is related to the Furies. The Furies were ancient goddesses born, again, of the blood of heaven, usually, and they would punish various types of wrongdoers. In other words, there's a sense in which I wouldn't say punishment, because this is a little too sort of high-handed ethical, right? But there is a sense in which Look, there's a lesson to be learned here, and there's a way we have to live differently in response to it, right? It's not as, I would say, straightforward as like, let's say I was a fundamentalist Christian, and I would say, oh, God is punishing us, right? I've heard people say things like, oh, well, the earth is, is punishing us, or, or, you know, something like this, even in a more pagan context. It's not that simple, I don't think. But I do think that when nature and this is one reason why I'm a little obsessed with natural disasters, despite being very moved, of course, by the idea of people in danger and all the harms that they do. But there's a sense that when nature stops the world, when nature steps in and says, no, 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 you don't get to keep doing what you're doing every day. You don't get to do that anymore. We better listen, right? <laughs> that, that We're being told something in those moments. And I don't think, I'm not trying to suggest that there's some sort of hidden message that I know and you don't and everyone better figure it out. No, I, I think the message is going to be very often individual. There's sort of society-wide messages to take away from this too. But I do think that we should approach this in terms of meaning and what the story is, right? What is the story that we've been thrown into against our wills, right? The world has put us in a story. It has put us in a situation. And there is something to be learned from that. In fact, there's a lot to be learned from that. And one way to sort of capture this is that I was talking to a friend of mine the other day, and I ended up saying to him, look, people keep wondering when things will go back to normal. And I think the right response, and I actually have the same sort of view of how to respond to the monster in the White House, and I've had that same view for three years, right? But the right response is no, 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 no. Things do not go back to normal, right? That is not the outcome of this that we want. It's not when will things get back to normal. It's what is the new world we have to work to build in response to this. Right? So I think that that captures the meaning-laden view of a more high pagan perspective, where we don't just say, oh, you know, like it's a virus and viruses mutate. This is true. I'm not a dismisser of science at all, right? But there's an inadequacy in understanding this as some sort of massive natural accident. No, 
like there are various disasters that are hitting us one after another and they're related in various ways and there is lessons to be learned here and i think that we have to dig into what we're learning about our lives and our world from this that's really wonderful and and beautiful and thank you so much for that and thank you for your time this has been a really lovely chat and i appreciate you coming on the show oh i i appreciate you so much for having me on the show this has been wonderful thank you so much pleasure is all mine if people want to check you out and they want to read true to the earth and they want to read other things you're writing for example this paper which is going to come out at some point in a volume from this conference when it happens at some point which it's going to happen I, I have no doubt. And, you know, it's nice to think that I couldn't really afford to go when it was happening in March, but maybe now that it's happening later. But that's a personal thing. That's not about me. Um, <laughs> uh, so where can they go? Where can people, what can people do if they want to get more from you and certainly lay hands on this book? So the book is through Gods and Radicals Press, the the website Gods and Radicals. I, I wrote for quite a lot. I, I want to write for them again. I haven't done it in a while just because I've been fairly busy. But the book is True to the Earth, Pagan Political Theology. And you can find it on the Gods and Radicals Press website, which is actually a beautifulresistance.org is where you can find Gods and Radicals Press. You can also find my blog, which I don't keep up nearly enough, but my blog is Star and System at Blogspot. It's just, you know, it's not a very fancy blog. But yeah, starandsystem.blogspot.com. You can hunt me down there. You can also hunt me down as Cadmus on Facebook. And on Twitter, I'm at Star and System. And my name is Cadmus Herschel on there. So yeah, you can find me as Cadmus Herschel on Facebook, on Twitter. Star and System is my blog. And Gods and Radicals Press is where you can find True to the Earth, Pagan Political Theology. As for the paper we've been talking about, it's going to be in a volume by Revelor Press, I believe. Oh, cool. They're great. Yeah, I know at least one of the editors of that volume, he might be the only one, but I don't want to jump to that conclusion, is Dr. Al Cummins, who both you and I are are friends with. So yes, he's doing a lot of the work on that volume. I am curious, because it's no secret that Cadmus Herschel is a a pseudonym that you're using for, for various reasons. What is the origin of that? Okay, so the Herschel part is was never intended to be part of the Cadmus part. Right? Years ago, so I'll, I'll start with the Herschel part because it's silly, but years ago with MySpace and other types of things, there was a website called Ear Reality, which was an early social media platform as well for occultists. But anyway, I was on a lot of those things as Uncle Herschel, which was a name I just took on because I was in grad school and I was losing my mind and I was eating at Cracker Barrel of all places and they had an Uncle Herschel breakfast special and I started imagining Uncle Herschel and who he was uh, <laughs> and he, he became this thing in my mind that certainly was not intended by Cracker Barrel but you know he, he was this sort of exceptionally eccentric sort of figure who chugged absinthe and wore hundreds of scarves and anyway uh there was this whole image in my mind and i i was known as him for a while on various in various occult scenes including some on myspace and some in your reality and so on so that's where the herschel comes from Uh, and then of course there's the overlap with the planet herschel which was accidental but interesting 
Cadmus, I overtly adopted as my pen name when I started writing for Gods and Radicals and when I started my blog. And that came from some personal experiences while doing magic. It was basically a name that was sort of given to me type thing. I won't say too much about it, but yeah, it's both a magical practicing name, amongst others, that became a pen name as well. And Cadmus, you can look up his mythological associations too, which have ended up being as magical mottos very often are, have end up being uh, fairly prophetic in ways I didn't expect. I constantly stumble upon aspects of the Cadmus legends that overlap with stuff that I'm doing or thinking about that I never expected. So there's a lot of that as well. But long story short, it was kind of given to me in a occult context, not by any organization. I'm actually not an initiate of any occult group, but within sort of a working of my own. So actually, because I feel like we were closing things down, but actually this brings up a, a question that I've been thinking about a lot and I want to put to you because you, of course, are not only a fellow traveler, but someone who honestly has known and done and seen a lot more than I have in this world. How important is the idea of adopting a kind of magical alter ego? Because I know there are some people who I sort of like, they keep their, they try to keep their mundane lives and their magical lives separate, not just for like practical reasons, but for like magical metaphysical reasons. Do you think that this is a useful technique or an important thing that people should try to do? Because I mean, you were saying Cadmus is a name that was given to you. So that was not yes. sort of a- Yeah, so- It's not the type of thing I would say that people should or shouldn't do. What I would say is this, that, you know, and this is a fairly common story for a lot of practitioners, I'm sure. But I started out, certainly in in my early years of occult experimentation and whatnot, started out doing a lot of stuff connected to Crowley and connected to his vision and understanding of the Golden Dawn and the AA and, and so on and so forth. And so I had followed for a long time, for several years, a process of taking on new magical mottos or names when I had experienced what seemed to me particularly important in initiatory events or things like that, right? So new names to mark important moments in my progress and and in my life. Now, that was very meaningful for me. And actually, to tie it into a lot of my contemporary, my current perspective, this is also a very common thing within a lot of oral pagan societies, right? Within a lot of oral societies in general, that you're given new names to mark new moments of your life, new periods of your life, new aspects of yourself. And this is understood or can be understood in contrast to the idea that we get from a lot of monotheism that there is the true name, that a person has their true name or a thing has its true name, the name that Adam gave it, for example, or the name that God gave it or whatever the case may be. The process of taking on new names, I think, can be understood to undermine that assumption in a very productive and useful way. In other words, it marks new connections and new references and and new sort of threads in the weave that you're vibrating with. And I think that that can be very powerful and very useful. However, you know, people have to work out the things that work best for them. So I wouldn't say that it's important that everyone do this. 
but it, it's a practice that was at first very useful for me because I was coming at it from a sort of golden dawn perspective or a version of a golden dawn perspective. Again, I, I never underwent initiation. And later I came to understand it differently in a more sort of high pagan sense as marking new aspects of myself and transformations I had gone through and the growing plurality that we are. Because that's one of the interesting things about this sort of pagan view is that if you think in terms of the true self or the essence or the true will if we appeal to sort of a Crowley framework. All of that is about, in a weird way, simplification and boiling down and finding that kernel or that foundation or that one point. It's heavily monotheistic. It's heavily literate. It's heavily abstract. I think that with a high pagan understanding, we move in the opposite direction. In other words, we become bigger and richer and more complex throughout our whole lives. We become new people and different people and more people, right? We multiply in that way. So like, for example, I've actually published under three entirely different names in different areas, right? One is an academic sort of name. One is some fiction and short stories and things like that that I've written. And one is, you know, my work on paganism and occultism and so on. And all three of those names are in a sense me. And all three of those names could be understood as different people as well. You know, we become more faceted and more complex over time. And I think recognizing that and honoring that can be super, super important. I mean, of course, you also have sort of this traditional idea that there's an element of protection that comes with us too. One shouldn't know your true name. And, you know, there, there's that kind of stuff. But I think that that, again, falls into the true name trap. It's a very sort of monotheist, abstract perspective. So, yeah, I'm not too worried about concealing in that way. It's instead a way of sort of honoring the plurality that I am. That's really, I love that. Well, thank you so much for being on and everyone should be reading this book. Thank you so much to Cadmus. If you wanted to learn more about Cadmus or grab yourself a copy of True to the Earth, Pagan Political Theology, I'll have links for his various websites and where you can get that book in the show notes. The essay that we talk about, about necromancy, will be part of an anthology coming from Revelor Press as part of their Folk Necromancy in Transmission series, so keep an eye out for that. We will do an announcement about that on the program whenever that ends up coming out, and we'll also give you an announcement of the new dates of that Folk Necromancy conference when that does re-emerge because I'm excited for it, and maybe I can go. Maybe you can go. I don't know. It's going to be, maybe it'll be bigger and better because of this delay, uh, which would be a lovely little silver lining in the midst of all this. Thank you so much for listening. By all means, if you want to help the program out, go to patreon.com slash witchhassle. Our theme music was performed by Sebastian Baberstam and recorded by Edward Lee. Good luck. Mm-hmm.